section ninety-nine of the genius by theodore dreiser this librivox recording is in the public domain book three chapter twenty six the most dangerous thing to possess a man to the extent of dominating him is an idea it can and does ride him to destruction eugene's idea of the perfection of eighteen was one of the most dangerous things in his nature in a way combined with the inability of angela to command his interest and loyalty it had been his undoing up to this date a religious idea followed in a narrow sense would have diverted this other but it also might have destroyed him if he had been able to follow it fortunately the theory he was now interesting himself in was not a narrow dogmatic one in any sense but religion in its large aspects a comprehensive resume and spiritual coordination of the metaphysical speculation of the time which was worthy of anyone's intelligent inquiry christian science as a cult of religion was shunned by current religions and religionists as something outre impossible uncanny as necromancy imagination hypnotism mesmerism spiritism everything in short that it was not and little if anything that it really was mrs eddy had formulated or rather restated a fact that was to be found in the sacred writings of india in the hebrew testaments old and new in socrates marcus aurelius st augustine emerson and carlyle the one variation notable between her and the moderns was that her ruling unity was not malicious as eugene and many others fancied but helpful her unity was a unity of love god was everything but the father of evil which according to her was an illusion neither fact nor substance sound and fury signifying nothing it must be remembered that during all the time eugene was doing this painful and religious speculation he was living in the extreme northern portion of the city working desultorily at some paintings which he thought he might sell visiting angela occasionally safely hidden away in the maternity hospital at one hundred and tenth street thinking hourly and momentarily of suzanne and wondering if by any chance he should ever see her any more his mind had been so inflamed by the beauty and the disposition of this girl that he was really not normal any longer he needed some shock some catastrophe greater than any he had previously experienced to bring him to his senses the loss of his position had done something the loss of suzanne had only heightened his affection for her the condition of angela had given him pause for it was an interesting question what would become of her if she would only die he said to himself for we have the happy faculty of hating most joyously on this earth the thing we have wronged the most he could scarcely go and see her so obsessed with he with the idea that she was a handicap to his career the idea of her introducing a child into his life only made him savage now if she should die he would have the child to care for and suzanne because of it might never come to him his one idea at this time 
was not to be observed too much, or rather not at all, for he considered himself to be in great disfavor, and only likely to do himself injury by a public appearance, a fact which was more in his own mind than anywhere else. If he had not believed it, it would not have been true. For this reason, he had selected this quiet neighborhood where the line of current city traffic was as nothing, for here he could brood in peace. The family that he lived with knew nothing about him. Winter was setting in. Because of the cold and snow and high winds, he was not likely to see many people hereabouts, particularly those celebrities who had known him in the past. There was a great deal of correspondence that followed him from his old address, for his name had been used on many committees. He was in Who's Who, and he had many friends less distinguished than those whose companionship would have required the expenditure of much money, who would have been glad to look him up. He ignored all invitations, however, refused to indicate by return mail where he was for the present, walked largely at night, read, painted, or sat and brooded during the day. He was thinking all the time of Suzanne and how disastrously fate had trapped him, apparently through her. He was thinking that she might come back, that she ought. Lovely, hurtful pictures came to him of re-encounters with her in which she would rush into his arms, never to part from him any more. Angela, in her room at the hospital, received little thought from him. She was there. She was receiving expert medical attention. He was paying all the bills. Her serious time had not yet really come. Myrtle was seeing her. He caught glimpses of himself at times as a cruel, hard intellect, driving the most serviceable thing his life had known from him with blows. But somehow it seemed justifiable. Angela was not suited to him. Why could she not live away from him? Christian science set aside marriage entirely as a human illusion, conflicting with the indestructible unity of the individual with God. Why shouldn't she let him go? He wrote poems to Suzanne and read much poetry that he found in an old trunk full of books in the house where he was living. He would read again and again the sonnet beginning when in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, that cry out of a darkness that seemed to be like his own. He bought a book of verse by Yeats and seemed to hear his own voice saying of Suzanne, Why should I blame her that she filled my days with misery? He was not quite as bad as when he had broken down eight years before, but he was very bad. His mind was at once riveted upon the uncertainty of life, its changes, its follies. He was studying those things which deal with the abstrusities of nature, and this began to breed again a morbid fear of life itself. Myrtle was greatly distressed about him. She worried lest he might lose his mind. "'Why don't you go to see a practitioner, Eugene?' she begged of him one day. "'You will get help. Really, you will. You think you won't. But you will. There is something about them. I don't know what. They are spiritually at rest. You will feel better. Do go. Oh, why do you bother me, Myrtle? Please don't. I don't want to go. I think there is something in the idea, metaphysically speaking, 
but why should i go to a practitioner god is as near me as he is anyone if there is a god myrtle wrung her hands and because she felt so badly more than anything else he finally decided to go there might be something hypnotic or physically contagious about these people some old alchemy of the mortal body which could reach and soothe him he believed in hypnotism hypnotic suggestion etc he finally called up one practitioner an old lady highly recommended by myrtle and others who lived farther south on broadway somewhere in the neighborhood of myrtle's home mrs althea johns was her name a woman who had performed wonderful cures why should he eugene witla he asked himself as he took up the receiver why should he eugene witla ex-managing publisher of the united magazines corporation ex-artist in a way he felt he was no longer an artist in the best sense be going to a woman in christian science to be healed of what gloom yes failure yes heartache yes his evil tendencies in regard to women such as the stranger who had sat beside him had testified to yes how strange and yet he was curious it interested him a little to speculate as to whether this could really be done could he be healed of failure could this pain of longing be made to cease did he want it to cease no certainly not he wanted suzanne myrtle's idea he knew was that somehow this treatment would reunite him with angela and make him forget suzanne but he knew that could not be he was going but he was going because he was unhappy and idle and aimless he was going because he really did not know what else to do the apartment of mrs johns mrs althea johns was in an apartment house of conventional design of which there were in new york hundreds upon hundreds at the time there was a spacious areaway between two wings of cream-colored pressed brick leading back to an entranceway which was protected by a handsome wrought-iron door on either side of which was placed an electric lamp support of handsome design holding lovely cream-colored globes shedding a soft luster inside was the usual lobby elevator uniformed negro elevator man indifferent and impertinent and the telephone switchboard the building was seven stories high eugene went one snowy blustery january night the great wet flakes were spinning in huge whirls and the streets were covered with a soft slushy carpet of snow he was interested as usual in spite of his gloom in the picture of beauty the world presented the city wrapped in a handsome mantle of white here were cars rumbling people hunched in great coats facing the driving wind he liked the snow the flakes this wonder of material living it eased his mind of his misery and made him think of painting again mrs johns was on the seventh floor eugene knocked and was admitted by a maid he was shown to a waiting room for he was a little ahead of his time and there were others healthy-looking men and women who did not appear to have an ache or pain ahead of him was not this a sign he thought as he sat down that this was something which dealt with imaginary ills 
then why had the man he had heard in the church beside him testified so forcefully and sincerely to his healing well he would wait and see he did not see what it could do for him now he had to work he sat there in one corner his hands folded and braced under his chin thinking the room was not artistic but rather nondescript the furniture cheap or rather tasteless in design didn't divine mind know any better than to present its representative in such a guise as this could a person called to assist in representing the majesty of god on earth be left so unintelligent artistically as to live in a house like this surely this was a poor manifestation of divinity but mrs johns came a short stout homely woman gray wrinkled dowdy in her clothing a small wen on one side of her mouth a nose slightly too big to be pleasing all mortal deficiencies as to appearance highly emphasized and looking like an old print of mrs micawber that he had seen somewhere she had on a black skirt good as the material but shapeless commonplace and a dark blue-gray waist her eye was clear and gray though he noticed and she had a pleasing smile this is mr witla i believe she said coming across the room to him for he had got into a corner near the window and speaking with an accent which sounded a little scotch i'm so glad to see you won't you come in she said giving him precedence over some others because of his appointment and recrossed the room preceding him down the hall to her practice room she stood to one side to take his hand as he passed he touched it gingerly so this was mrs johns he thought as he entered looking about him bangs and myrtle had insisted that she had performed wonderful cures or rather that divine mind had through her her hands were wrinkled her face old why didn't she make herself young if she could perform these wonderful cures why was this room so mussy it was actually stuffy with chromos and etchings of the christ and bible scenes on the walls a cheap red carpet or rug on the floor inartistic leather-covered chairs a table or desk too full of books a pale picture of mrs eddy and silly mottoes of which he was sick and tired hung here and there people were such hacks when it came to the art of living how could they pretend to a sense of divinity who knew nothing of life he was weary and the room here offended him mrs johns did besides her voice was slightly falsetto could she cure cancer or consumption or all other horrible human ills as myrtle insisted she had he didn't believe it he sat down wearily and yet contentiously in the chair she pointed out to him and stared at her while she quietly seated herself opposite him looking at him with kindly smiling eyes and now she said easily what does god's child think is the matter with him eugene stirred irritably god's child he thought what can't what right has he to claim to be a child of god what was the use of beginning that way it was silly so asinine why not ask plainly what was the matter with him still he answered oh a number of things so many 
that I am pretty sure they can never be remedied. As bad as that? Surely not. It is good to know, anyhow, that nothing is impossible to God. We can believe that, anyhow, can't we? She replied, smiling. You believe in God or a ruling power, don't you? I don't know whether I do or not. In the main, I guess I do. I'm sure I ought to. Yes, I guess I do. Is he a malicious God to you? I have always thought so, he replied, thinking of Angela. Mortal mind, mortal mind, she surveyed it to herself. What delusions will it not harbor? And then the hymn. One has to be cured almost against one's will to know that God is a God of love. So you believe you are sinful, do you, and that he is malicious? It is not necessary that you should tell me how. We are all alike in the mortal state. I would like to call your attention to Isaiah's words. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Eugene had not heard this quotation for years. It was only a dim thing in his memory. It flashed out simply now and appealed, as had all these Hebraic bursts of prophetic imagery in the past. Mrs. Johns, for all her when and her big nose and dowdy clothes, was a little better for having been able to quote this so aptly. It raised her in his estimation. It showed a vigorous mind, at least a tactful mind. Can you cure sorrow? he asked grimly with a touch of sarcasm in his voice. Can you cure heartache or fear? I can do nothing of myself, she said, perceiving his mood. All things are possible to God, however. If you believe in a supreme intelligence, he will cure you. St. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthen me. Have you read Mrs. Eddy's book? Most of it. I'm still reading it. Do you understand it? No, not quite. It seems a bundle of contradictions to me. To those who are first coming into science, it nearly always seems so. But don't let that worry you. You would like to be cured of your troubles. St. Paul says, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. The Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Do not think of me as a woman, or as having anything to do with this. I would rather have you think of me as St. Paul describes anyone who works for truth. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead. Be you reconciled to God. You know your Bible, don't you? said Eugene. It is the only knowledge I have, she replied. There followed one of those peculiar religious demonstrations so common in Christian science, so peculiar to the uninitiated, in which she asked Eugene to fix his mind in meditation on the Lord's Prayer. Never mind if it seems pointless to you now. You have come here seeking aid. You are God's perfect image and likeness. He will not send you away empty-handed. Let me read you first, though, this one psalm, which I think is always so helpful to the beginner. She opened her Bible, which was on the table near her, and began. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee 
from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence he shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wing shalt thou trust his truth shall be thy shield and thy buckler thou shalt not be afraid of the terror by night nor the arrow that flieth by day nor for the pestilence that walketh in the darkness nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday a thousand shall fall at thy side and ten thousand at thy right hand but it shall not come nigh thee only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked because thou hast made the lord which is my refuge even in the most high thy habitation there shall be no evil befall thee neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling for he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways they shall bear thee up in their hands lest thou dash thy foot against the stone thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under foot because he hath set his love upon me therefore i will deliver him i will set him on high because he hath known my name he shall call upon me and i will answer him i will be with him in trouble i will deliver him and honor him with long life will i satisfy him and show him my salvation during this most exquisite pronunciamento of divine favor eugene was sitting with his eyes closed his thoughts wandering all over his recent ills for the first time in years he was trying to fix his mind upon an all-wise omnipresent omnipotent generosity it was hard and he could not reconcile the beauty of this expression of divine favor with the nature of the world as he knew it what was the use of saying thou shalt bear thee up in their hands lest thou dash thy foot against a stone when he had seen angela and himself suffering so much recently wasn't he dwelling in the secret place of the most high when he was alive how could one get out of it still because he hath set his love on me therefore i will deliver him was that the answer was angela's love set on him was his own might not all their woes have sprung from that he shall call upon me and i shall answer i will deliver him in trouble i will deliver him and honor him had he ever really called on him had angela hadn't they been left in the slough of their own despondent still angela was not suited to him why did not god straighten that out he didn't want to live with her he wandered through this philosophically critically until mrs john stopped what he asked himself if in spite of all his doubts this seeming clamor and reality and pain and care were an illusion angela was suffering so were many other people how could this thing be true did not these facts exclude the possibility of illusion could they possibly be a part of it now we're going to try to realize that we are god's perfect children she said stopping and looking at him we think we are so big and strong and real we are real enough but only as a thought in god that is all no harm can happen to us there no evil can come nigh us for god is infinite all-powerful all life truth love over all and all 
she closed her eyes and began as she said to try to realize for him the perfectness of his spirit in god eugene sat there trying to think of the lord's prayer but in reality thinking of the room the cheap prints the homely furniture her ugliness the curiousness of his being there he eugene witla being prayed for what would angela think why was this woman old if spirit could do all these other things why didn't she make herself beautiful what was it she was doing now was this hypnotism mesmerism she was practicing he remembered where mrs eddy had especially said that these were not to be practiced could not be in science no she was no doubt sincere she looked it talked it she believed in this beneficent spirit would it aid as the psalm said would it heal this ache would it make him not want suzanne ever any more perhaps that was evil yes no doubt it was still perhaps he had better fix his mind on the lord's prayer divinity could aid him if it would certainly it could no doubt of it there was nothing impossible to this vast force ruling the universe look at the telephone wireless telegraphy how about the stars and sun he shall give his angels charge over thee now said mrs johns after some fifteen minutes of silent meditation had passed and she had opened her eyes smilingly we are going to see whether we are not going to be better we are going to feel better because we are going to do better and because we are going to realize that nothing can hurt an idea in god all the rest is illusion it cannot hold us for it is not real think good god and you are good think evil and you are evil but it has no reality outside your own thought remember that she talked to him as though he were a little child he went out into the snowy night where the wind was whirling the snow in picturesque whirls buttoning his coat about him the cars were running up broadway as usual taxicabs were scuttling by there were people foraging their way through the snow that ever-present company of a great city there were arc lights burning clearly blue through the flying flakes he wondered as he walked whether this would do him any good mrs eddy had insisted that all these were unreal he thought that mortal mind had evolved something which was not in accord with spirit mortal mind a liar and the father of it he recalled that quotation could it be so was evil unreal was misery only a belief could he come out of his sense of fear and shame and once more face the world he boarded a car to go north at kingsbridge he made his way thoughtfully to his room how could life ever be restored to him as it had been he was really forty years of age he sat down in his chair near his lamp and took up his book science and health and opened it aimlessly then he sought for curiosity's sake he would see where he had opened it what the particular page or paragraph his eyes fell on had to say to him he was still intensely superstitious he looked and here was this paragraph growing under his eyes when mortal man blends his thoughts of existence with the spiritual and works only as god works he will no longer grope in the dark 
and cling to earth because he has not tasted heaven carnal beliefs defraud us they make man an involuntary hypocrite producing evil when he would create good forming deformity when he would outline grace and beauty injuring those whom he would bless he becomes a general miscreator who believes he is a semi-god his touch turns hope to dust the dust we have all trod he might say in bible language the good that i would i do not but evil which i would not i do he closed the book and meditated he wished he might realize this thing if it were so still he did not want to become a religionist a religious enthusiast how silly they were he picked up his daily paper the evening post and there on an inside page quoted in an obscure corner was a passage from a poem by the late francis thompson entitled the hound of heaven it began i fled him down the nights and down the days i fled him down the arches of the years the ending moved him strangely still with unhurrying chase an unperturbed face deliberate speed majestic instancy came on the following feet and a voice above their beat not shelters thee who wilt not shelter me did this man really believe this was it so he turned back to his book and read on and by degrees he came half to believe that sin and evil and sickness might possibly be illusions that they could be cured by aligning oneself intellectually and spiritually with this divine principle he wasn't sure this terrible sense of wrong could he give up suzanne did he want to no he got up and went to the window and looked out the snow was still blowing give her up give her up and angela in such a precarious condition what a devil of a hole he was in anyway well he would go and see her in the morning he would at least be kind he would see her through this thing he laid down and tried to sleep but somehow sleep never came to him right any more he was too wearied too distressed too wrought up still he slept a little and that was all he could hope for in these days End of section 99